All right, chapter 5. <clears throat> um, we're going we're gonna to read through these verses here in just a minute. Before we look into chapter 5, um, which continues really the discussion of Jesus as high priest, um, I want to remind us that um, the points made in the first 10 verses, okay, as we prepare to go through this chapter, but it's kind of two sections, the first 10 verses and then the remaining four there up through 14. But the first 10 verses follow the thought that has been put forth at the end of chapter 4, specifically the verses 14 through 16, <clears throat> where we kind of ended and concluded last week talking about Jesus as the great high priest. This idea, this concept, this truth about Jesus being the high priest, it, it's not the first time that it's been introduced in the, the book of Hebrews. It's, it's just that at the end of that chapter, he's referred to as great high priest. And as you know, one of the main themes of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus. And in the first two chapters of the book of Hebrews, there's the foundation that is being laid for the superiority of Jesus Christ. And then from that foundation, there's a case that's continuing to be made, that has been made, and is continuing to be made for Jesus being greater than many other things. For example, we looked at Jesus being greater than the prophets, Jesus being uh, greater than the angels. And then when we transition to 3 and 4, the superiority of Jesus Christ was built up or showed up, shored up by these evidences that Jesus, who is the high priest of our confession, right, with a heavenly calling, is even greater than Moses. And I want to go back over that. You can go online and listen to it if you haven't yet done so. But in chapter 5, with this point being established that Jesus now is not only our high priest, but the great high priest, greater in his person and greater in his position, like we talked about last week, the end of our study, the focus now is directed on Aaron and the Levitical priesthood, and specifically that Jesus is superior or better, greater than Aaron and the Levitical priesthood and all that that entailed. And, um, <clears throat> and we know that Aaron was Israel's first high priest. And in this chapter, there are three reasons, if you're taking notes, this will kind of guide us through this chapter, three reasons for why Jesus is a greater priest than Aaron. And again, the point of this chapter, I want to reiterate this as we go through this. This is in no way to diminish the old covenant, the diminish the, the temple, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, or even in this sense, it's no, it's no, the point of this chapter is not to diminish the Levitical priesthood or the office of high priest. These things were things that God had established. They were for a time, however. They were always leading up to what we would receive in Christ. And so um, uh, Aaron and the high priest and his descendants and all that were called to that were very significant, very important. They served their role. They were faithful servants, just like we read about Moses last week. So if that's not the point, we see that the point is this. It's simply to demonstrate that through the office and through the order of high priests that Jesus Christ now occupies, right, seated at the right hand of God, uh, at the throne of God, living evermore to make intercession for us, that this position, these duties, this office, this call, everything that Jesus is involved with high priest is better, is better for us who put our faith in him. What is better? Everything. Everything, all the aspects of that and that affords us is better for those who put our, our faith in Jesus. So listen, in the context of the book of Hebrews where the Hebrew people were being tempted and, and, and tried by false teachers to forsake Christ and Christianity and go back 
to Judaism, the thought or the idea is this, that if a person was to abandon Jesus for Judaism, to go back to Judaism, they would really be exchanging a great high priest for a lesser high priest. And with this thought, we read on in chapter 5. It says in verse 1, For every high priest, speaking of the priesthood, taken from among men is appointed for men in the things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, the honor or the position of priesthood. Here's what it's talking about. No one takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. So, verse 5, also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. He didn't take this on himself. He didn't appoint himself. He didn't ordain himself. But it was he who said to him, who, who did it is what the author is saying. And of course, it's God to him. He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, again, quoting from the Old Testament, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And, that, and, and within that text, within that thought, really hinges everything that we're going to be looking at and talking about today. So now we know from what we read here is that God established both the priesthood and the office of high priest. And um, this was in the days of Moses. It's described in detail for us when we look back to the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 28. We look at the historical account of the Hebrew people and God's communications with them about the Old Testament, the covenant and tabernacle and the sacrificial system. And all of that was wrapped up within the priesthood. And then that's where we read about it. And in the first four verses of this chapter, however, in chapter 5, if you look at it there, really what we're seeing on a foundational level that'll carry us through the rest of this chapter and really through chapter 10 is, is we're given a concise purpose for the priesthood, okay? Um, it's explained to us in a very understandable way. It's not exhaustive in, in, in every aspect that, was, that, that it defines the priest or the role of the priest or the Levitical priesthood or even the high priest, but a very concise purpose is brought forth and explained in an understandable way and in the first thing that we're told if you look here is that the high priest was taken from from men from his fellow men they were one of whom they ministered to and for and any and they and and they were appointed by god is what we're told to serve god on their behalf in order to do what offer up gifts and sacrifices specifically for sin in light of this, we see that, that the primary job, not the exclusive job, right again, it's more exhaustive than this, but the primary job of the high, free, the high priest was to officiate, to oversee the sacrificial system, sacrifices and offerings that were made to God either directly by them or indirectly through other low, lower ranking priests, men who were of the tribe of Levi. And this explanation, think about it as we look at this, this explanation of who a priest was, this explanation of what a priest did, this explanation of who and what he did it for is made really clear. It's very simple. But verse 2, look at it, goes on to tell us, to let us know that God chose a man to be his high priest. Why? Because he being a man, this is the reason for why God chose a man, not an angel, not other spiritual being, not a superior whatever in that sense, but he chose a man, a simple man, because he being a man, he has this ability to have compassion on those who sin. 
He understands. And he being a man um, knows what it means to be weak. He being human knows what it means to sin, to go astray, just like those to whom he's ministering to, right? However, as verse 3 points out, because a priest is also a man who goes astray, so there's an advantage to having a man ministering to men, but there's also a disadvantage because a man who goes astray, verse 3 says, he's got to take care of business for himself before he can take care of business for other people in regards to the things of God. A sacrifice must be made for himself before he can come before God and make sacrifices for others, this primary thing that he'd been called to do. And so even if there is a benefit, is what we're being told here, even if there's a benefit for a man uh, being a priest, there are also disadvantages of, 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 to having a man as a priest. But nevertheless, God knowing this, as verse 4 says, right? God, God established it this way. God ordained it this way. This was according to his plan, his will, his purposes. As we we're told that no one, no one takes this honor unto himself. No one. They must be called by God. They must be chosen by God, just as Aaron was called and chosen by God, just like the Levites were called and chosen by God. And all of this is significant, especially in light of verse 4, because the Hebrew people, think about it, this is to the audience to who it was originally written. The Hebrew people knew that God could only call a man to be a priest. It was only God who could give this honor, this position to. And he had chosen, and he had ordained, and he had set it forth from the very beginning that it was to be the men of the tribe of Levi, that they would be his priests, and that it would be Aaron and then his descendants who would be the high priest. Meaning this, it did not matter. It didn't matter one bit how much a person wanted to be a priest, and it did not matter how much power a person had that they might be able to exhort exhort their authority to elevate themselves to this position of priest. They could not do it if God had not called them. In fact, if you were a Hebrew person or a man or woman at this time, or, or even us who have a knowledge of the Old Testament, we know according to the Hebrew history that, that this happened. There were times when men would elevate themselves into this position that God had set forth for a specific way to a specific people, and every time they did that, it did not go well with them. They, 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 they stepped into the office of priests, or they even just simply went to do one of the duties of the priest. For example, in number 16, we read about a man named Korah. This happened very shortly after God set up the Levitical system. This guy full of jealousy and envy, he wanted to be in charge. And he's like, Moses, who are you? And Aaron, who are you? And it's like, well, we're nobody, but this is what God has said. But he stepped into this role. He led a rebellion. He wanted to, he, 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 he acted as a priest and he took incense and he offered up incense. And God said, no, nah, we're not having this. And God caused the earth to open up and it swallowed Korah and these men who were raising up against whom God had appointed. Swallowed up, ate them, and they died. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 13, we read about this again with a man named Saul, the first king of Israel, one who was anointed by the great prophet Samuel to be king over God's people. But yet what we know about Saul is that um, he made a burnt offering at one point. He, 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 he stepped into the role. He was impatient. And he stepped into the role. He says, I don't need Samuel to do this, a prophet and a priest. I'll do it myself. And he offered a burnt offering. And as a result, when Samuel got there, he's all, what did you do? And Saul was in trouble. And God told Samuel to prophesy to Saul that because of doing this, that his kingdom would be taken from him and given to another. 
Also in 2 Chronicles, this one's kind of fascinating. We read about another king, a man named Uzziah. And he went into the temple against the protests of the priests. Don't do this. It's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. And we know that he went in the temple full of pride, taking honor unto himself, and he offered up incense. And God's response was immediately that man became a leper, was struck with leprosy. And he remained a leper until the day he died. You see, this thing that's being spoken of here, the, the Hebrew people and the author of the book of Hebrews says, this is a very big deal. It's a very important thing. God doesn't take it lightly. So if, so if God had to call a person to this honor of priests, and he gave this honor exclusively to the men of, of the tribe of Israel and the position of high priest exclusively to Aaron and his sons, the question that would arise and should arise in our hearts and minds is this, is then how then is Jesus who is not of the tribe of Levi, but who is of the kingly tribe of Judah, how is he then able to fulfill this office of high priest? You've said to us he, he's a high priest, and this is what it affords us. And now you're saying he's a great high priest, greater in position, greater in person. So, so how do these things come together? And the answer to this question would have been obvious, or excuse me, the answer to this question um, is given to us in verses 5 and 6. And in this answer to the question, we're also given an explanation for why Jesus is a better priest. Let's look at it. The point is, is unlike Korah, unlike Saul, unlike Uzziah, and others like them, Jesus did not try to take honor unto himself. Look at verses 5 and 6. That's what it says. Did not take the honor of the priesthood unto himself. Rather, Jesus was called also by God to this honor, and more importantly, his ordination was greater because God himself ordained Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is the Son of Man. And so to establish this point, the writer then quotes from the Old Testament. First, we read Psalm 104, verse 4, where we're told that the Father ordained his Son into an eternal priestly ministry, which is of the order of Melchizedek. And then he tries... He, he ties excuse me, this, this, this to another quote, this thought to another quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. That's the additional italics verse that you find there in verse 5, which according to what we also read in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, where this psalm is again quoted, but it quoted, it's quoted specifically in reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And through that, we see this thread connecting everything to us. And when we do it, it makes perfect sense if you remember back in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, we're told that the, the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ is to those who are of a heavenly calling. Remember, we talked about all of that. And that heavenly calling is greater than the earthly calling that the priesthoods were called to minister to and about. And the priesthood of Melchizedek is the main point of Hebrews chapter 7 through 10 when we get there. We're not there yet. We'll get there in a little bit. But the whole argument of those chapters is simply this. Jesus is a greater high priest because his priesthood is of a greater order. It's, it's being alluded to here at the very beginning. He's of the order of Melchizedek, not of the order of Aaron, not a Levite. And this is because, just look at, we'll just look at it here for what it is right now and not get too far ahead into what's going to come, but Melchizedek, these indicators are this. Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, being the king of righteousness, who is also, we're told, when we look at the Old Testament, he's also the priest of Salem, meaning peace. And so like Melchizedek, who is a king and priest, when we look at him in person, in office, 
as the Old Testament points it out, and it's now being brought forth in relationship to Jesus Christ and His heavenly ministry, we see too that Jesus is also a king. He's also a priest, right? The king of righteousness. The prince of peace. A priest. A holy priest. In fact, Jesus is called a priest by God who is seated on an eternal heavenly throne. And when we get to Hebrews chapter 7, that's what we're going to explore in detail. Look forward to that. It's good stuff. But for now, speaking about Jesus... As a priest forever, a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, right, as we read there in verse 6, verse 7 goes on and says, who, speaking of this priest, of this king of righteousness, right, he says, in the days of his flesh, meaning when he was here on this earth, Jesus, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And when he heard, when he was, and, and he was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So any priest, any priest, especially the high priest, had to be chosen by God. And, and we know that, secondly, what, we're, what, we, what we've seen is that he being a man chosen from men for the purpose of compassion, he had to be compassionate. He had to be sympathetic towards the people he was ministering Two, right on behalf of God and this is what verse 2 was telling us that a priest is a man from among men and obviously when we look back and look at Aaron and his sons and all the other Levite priests all being men we know that they were they were weak they were not perfect they were sinners even as they fulfilled the call and duties that they had and and because they could understand what it meant to be a sinner they could be um, compassionate towards those who were weak he could sympathize with them. And so when we look at these next two verses, we see that being further expounded for us in relationship to Jesus. And Jesus being the Son of God, the Son of Man, He is, he is better equipped. He's actually, he, he can do the same thing. We know He's the Son of God, He's the Son of Man. God in a body. God fully, man fully. And, and He, having this human body that we've talked about in the past, He's experienced all the same things that we experience. And this was something... That, that lets us see, as we've mentioned before, how Jesus is able and willing and, 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 and to sympathize with our weaknesses. And he has compassion for us, and there's a comfort found in that. And this very point is being brought up again in these next two verses in, in really a way that is very profound because they point out that the, they point to it says here the training really that Jesus received in being a sympathetic high priest, it came through his sufferings. While he was here on this earth, training through suffering that even brought, we read here and we think about the, the, maybe the Garden of Gethsemane and um, at this moment, but the cries and the tears that Jesus brought forth as he prayed and, and, and called out to his Father. And yet he, unlike any other priest, learned obedience by the things he suffered, right? Not my will be done. Nevertheless, not my will be done, Father, but your will be done. And it's so important for us to understand why? Because it reveals another reason for why Jesus is a greater high priest who can better sympathize with us in better ways than any earthly man can. And, and I just want to say this really quickly. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was without sin. He was completely obedient no matter what the temptation was, no matter what trial he faced. And he learned obedience. And, and, and we know that Jesus, who is God, experienced obedience when he cast off his heavenly glory and he humbled himself to take on flesh and come to be with us. And the Bible tells us that in doing so, 
Jesus did not pass from disobedience into obedience like we often do, right? (laughs) Rather, Jesus learned obedience by actually obeying. By the way, that's a better way. Knowing what God's Word says and just obeying. Learning obedience through obeying, not, not actually passing from disobedience to obedience. And Jesus learned it by actually obeying. In other words, Jesus did not learn how to obey. So what did he learn? He learned what is involved in obedience. He learned the experience of obedience as he went through that like we go through it in part. And part of that learning was through this enduring of suffering. Even to the point of death is what we're told. That he obeyed God unto the point of death. And because Jesus was tempted and tried and was without sin, he experienced each temptation and each trial to, his, to the fullness. And simply what that means is, is that he's greater in this aspect because he's been tested and tried in ways that we never will be as a human being. And the result of that is his ability to have compassion, his willingness to be sympathetic towards is greater because he's stronger in these areas. And so in verse 9, we read it, and it says, And having been perfected, he became the author of our eternal salvation to all who will obey him. Called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, it's a a clarifying statement there in verse 10, of whom the author now says, We have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So Jesus is a great high priest because he's chosen by God, because he's greater in compassion and his ability to sympathize with us, his ability and willingness to help us, right? And lastly, Jesus is greater, guys, what we read here is because he offers up a better sacrifice. The primary job of a priest, right? To officiate the offerings and sacrifices for sins. Jesus is a better officiator because he offers a better sacrifice and these two verses that i just read we see um, verses 9 and 10 i mean there are two important issues involved here's the first the very important issue to consider in in relationship to jesus in contrast to aaron or any other of the high priests that came before him is that jesus does not and did not need to offer any sacrifice for himself it's being perfect right and in leviticus chapter 9 leviticus 9 and chapter chapter 9 and chapter 16, we're told that uh, in both of these passages that on the Day of Atonement, every year, annually, the high priest had to sacrifice first for himself before he could fulfill that duty of offering up a sacrifice for the sins on that Day of Atonement for the rest of the people, for the nation of Israel. And, and, and what we're told, as a matter of fact, that is if he didn't do everything that he was supposed to do exactly the way that God had said, as he prepared himself and made his own sacrifice, where he goes, i got to get stuff right here before I get stuff right for you before God, if he messed up in any way, he'd be struck down. He'd be killed. It'd be over. It was a serious deal. This is not, this is not something that we're reading that we should be taking lightly. But since Jesus is the sinless Son of God, right, we know this, we can conclude that there was no sacrifice that he needed to make for himself. What does that mean? He being in perfect fellowship with the Father, always has been and still is, he needed no cleansing. There was no business that he, got to, he had to take care of for himself before he could do business for us. And that's a great thing when we consider it today because he lives in that role today, lives evermore in that role today. And it's not like you and I, we sin, we get in trouble, we come before God, we approach the throne room of grace, right? Boldly and confidently. And we go, here I am, I need help. And Jesus is all, whoa, hold on. i got to make some things right. Just give me a minute. 
I'll get to you when I can. He's always ready. He's always available. That's a greater thing. He was perfect in every way. Perfect in profession. Perfect in, in fellowship. No cleansing. Always prepared. Always ready. Now the second matter for us to consider is the fact that Jesus' sacrifice here, this was once and for all. That's a good thing. The sacrifice that Jesus made for us is better because it is once and for all. Because when we consider the Old Testament, these things that the Hebrew people were being tempted to go back to, when it came to the sacrificial system, it had to be repeated over and over and over and over again. Why? Because none of those sacrifices had the ability to cleanse sin, to do away with sin. They just had the ability, at best, to cover sin. So in order for us to be cleansed, Right, Once and for all, we had to have our sins removed. There had to be a better sacrifice. And we know, of course, the sacrifice is Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God. And the sacrifice that was better was the sacrifice of Himself. It was a perfect sacrifice in order for us to be cleansed, in order for our sins to be removed. Now, in application, think about that. I know we know this, but think about it. That means that because of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, God the Father now sees us as cleansed. All of our sins been removed, right? The Bible says as far as it is from the east to the west, uh, God has cast our sin. He remembers it no more as if it's been thrown into a sea of forgetfulness. And when God now looks at us, he sees us as justified, just as though we've not had any sin at all. It's not like we have a record that's been sealed up when we think about the court system that nobody can touch. It's like the record's been destroyed. And we stand before God in the perfectness of Jesus Christ because of the sacrifice. And as verse 9 declares, because Jesus, look, because He is sinless, and because He is the eternal Son of God, and because He offered a a perfect sacrifice, we should rightly conclude, as the author says here, that He is then the author of eternal salvation. Once and for all. For all eternity. For you and I. And the point is this, is that no Old Testament priest could ever offer eternal salvation to anyone. But this is exactly what we have in Jesus. And once we put our faith in Jesus and thus obeyed His call, His call to believe in Him, that's what it means, we then experience, we receive eternal salvation. In light of all this, I think it's difficult to resist the arguments that are being presented for why Jesus is greater. Logically, we go, there's no other way. There's no better way. And we must conclude that Jesus is a greater high priest and superior. He's a great high priest. He's superior to Aaron. He's superior to the Levitical system. He's superior to any work. And it would be foolish for anyone to return to the inferior the inferiorities of the Mosaic Law or to try to keep the commands of God and offer up any other sacrifice when we can be we, by faith, can freely enjoy these better or superiorities of Jesus Christ firsthand. Nevertheless, we're reading it here because the Hebrew people were considering this very thing. And yet, when we think about ourselves, we should understand that in many ways, we as believers today are tempted to enter into our own forms of legalism where we go, God, I don't need you. I'll take care of it on my own. That's, that's at the root of all legalism. It's pride. And in doing so, we, ab- we, we abandon or we forsake the work of God, the grace of God, for some kind of work that we think that we can enter into of ourselves. But the question to ask is, why would we do this? Why, 
Why, why do we do this? And as we read on, I think the reason for that is revealed to us in regards to the Hebrew people. It's the same thing as that they're used as our example, but it's, it's an issue of maturity. The reason why we do that is we're spiritually immature in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we continue on, we're going to see that the, the writer desires to give a greater explanation about the, the, the order of Melchizedek and everything that this affords to us. But because they were spiritually immature... You know, they were, they, were, they were not able to digest these deep things of God that He wanted to speak to Him. And so we read on in verse 11, and He says that, of whom we have much to say. We have much to say about Melchizedek. And He says they're hard to explain, not because these are complicated doctrinal issues, although I would, I would say that they're, some, 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 um, they're, they're, they're challenging anyway. But He says they're hard to explain because you've become dull of hearing. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. He's a babe. He's a baby. He's not an adult. He's not mature. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. For he is a babe. But Right, verse 14, solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use, those by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern or to be strengthened to be able to discern both what is good and what is evil. Man, uh, we're going to get to this, but I'm going to say off the beginning, the application of this is so profound to our lives today that we do not want to miss what's being taught here. Because we live in a world right now where this statement causes us to see that the confusion, the deception, the lies in this world are so profound that, that we have to be on our top game. We have to be seeking spiritual maturity. Why? Because we live in a world beyond a shadow of a doubt where the things that God calls good, the world calls evil. And the things that God says is evil, the world says is good. It's backwards in every single way and we're living in the midst of it we're saturated with it and we have to be guarded against it we have to exercise be exercising our spiritual senses so that we may discern what is good and what is evil not only for ourselves but for those around us guys so the first thing we're being told was the fact that these believers have become dull of hearing the word to focus on in this statement is the word become he's not saying you are and they are, but they had become this way. It lets us know that the Hebrew believers didn't start out dull of hearing. We don't start out dull of hearing. We enter into this place. We can enter into this. And this word dull in the verse 11 is a Greek word. Um, it's the word nothros, um, and it means slow or sluggish. It's, but specifically as it refers to a heart issue that produces a condition of, hear this, spiritual apathy laziness that ultimately prevents a spiritual development to take place in our hearts and in our minds and this is the reason for the writer didn't go into the deeper topic of Melchizedek right here so the thing for us to understand is that these Jewish believers current spiritual addition was not the result of having not been taught something they had been taught on the contrary um They had been taught, but the, but the point is, is that they lacked the ability now 
because of the, the spiritual condition that they were in, they lacked the ability to completely understand. They had regressed in their faith. They had become, they regressed in their faith and were experiencing a spiritual decline. So we should see that this is a warning for us. If you've been a believer for any amount of time, there's a warning here to not become dull of hearing, to not regress, to not become spiritually apathetic, to not become lazy in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And if we look back, if we consider this regression of faith, this spiritual decline, if we look back over what we've already read, the author has given us indicators along the way that leads up to this point. Because back in chapter 2 of verses 1 through 4, we see, as is indicated, that their, their backwards journey, which caused them to be dull of hearing, started with a drifting. The author says, you've drifted away from the Word of God. You were here, and you've moved away from the Word of God. He said they, did not give, they had not given heed right to the things that they had heard. They had heard it, but they did not give heed to it. Not only this, but apparently they were also doubting the Word of God. That's what we read in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, right? Where there was this warning spoken about an evil heart of unbelief, right? Doubting the Word of God, not believing the Word of God, which ultimately caused this departing from the living God. And as a result of the drifting from the Word of God, and as a result of their doubting of the Word of God, they were then departing from the Word of God, and now they were in the spiritual state of dull of hearing. In other words, they were unwilling to listen to God's Word. Here's how, how it simplifies it, I think, and applies to our own lives. And we look at it this way. They were unwilling to listen to God's Word, unwilling to receive God's Word, and unwilling to act on God's Word. And I, if I was to say by a show of hands, if anyone was ever guilty of this, everyone's hand would go up. Now the fact of the matter is, think about it like this, if a person becomes dull of hearing, they do so because at some point they've made a choice to be apathetic. They, here's what I mean, they, they made a, we made a decision to be unconcerned or lazy in regards to the things of God. We, we, we have this same um, temptation in all relationships, and the one that's probably the most adversely affected in the human side of things, in human relationship, is marriage. Men and women, think about it. We don't get to this place where like, oh, we've been married for 10 years. we got it all figured out. It's just cruise control from here. Smooth sailing. We become apathetic and kind of lazy in the things that you know are beneficial to a healthy relationship, and you just take things for granted. That's the idea behind what we're reading here. And, and it's true. And we wrongly believe that we've reached our, a spot in our relationship with God where we no longer have to keep pressing forward. And in that moment, the things of God start to become dull to us. You know, you hear men and women that like get divorced here. We just grew apart. What? But that's the idea here. We've drifted apart. We grew apart. We've not given intention. And sadly, what happens is this. Think about it in regards to spiritual things. Church is no longer as important as it used to be. Reading our Bible doesn't take the priority that it once used to have. Prayer becomes something that we primarily only do before we eat however as many of you know christianity is like mother many other than things in life in that if you're not moving forward you're sliding back and losing the position you're losing the understanding you're losing the advantage you once once had the most thing the most obvious to me is is in physical exercise there was a time my wife was running marathons and she's i have no understanding of why people do that even my wife who i know better than anyone else 
But I thought, yeah, I'll be running with her. And I run a half marathon, and, and um, I'm not a runner. I hate it. I have to lie to myself when I run. You can do it. I can't do it. <laughs> Just keep going. You only have to go this far. All these things. And there was a point. At one point, I was going to train for a marathon. I did my long run. It was like 20 miles. I, I couldn't run 20 miles right now. Why? Because I didn't continue on. Right? If I ran 20 miles right now, I'd be hospitalized. I would, I would, along the way, you'd have to pick up my limp body alongside the road. And there would, there's this decline. And these Hebrew believers, they were sliding backwards and made them vulnerable to these false teachers who were trying to convince them to abandon their faith for what they said is a better way. Abandon their faith in Jesus and in the gospel message to, in turn, to turn to something inferior to Judaism. And and not just in this sense, but for us, anything other than Jesus Christ and the gospel message is inferior for us to turn to. And so they were dull of hearing, make it hard for them to understand spiritual truth. And this was the evidence of their spiritual maturity. But there were other things. Look at verse 12. It says, for this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you. And again, the first principles of the oracle of God. He says, you should be teaching others. You should be sharing what you've received with others and they're not and that is such a huge sign of spiritual immaturity what is that the ability to share think about it even physiologically right when i think about this the first thing that comes to mind is a child children don't like to share don't well adults don't like to either but you know we we do it (laughs) it's mine kids are like playing with their toy no it's mine you know they won't let anyone else play with it and and one of the hardest lessons that a child or a person can learn is to share. Yet this is something that God desires for us to do. It's an evidence of maturity. Why? Because we do it in spite of how we feel. Because we know it's good. We know it's better. In the case of the, case of the Hebrew people, they had been taught. They had been taught, and so they had been. They, they should have been sharing. They should have been teaching others by this time the same spiritual truths that they had come to know. Yet they were. They reverted the. Back to this spiritual immaturity and the, the ability or the willingness, if you will, to share our spiritual truth with others is somehow an indicator or a mark of maturity of, of, of a mature person in the Lord in the sense that, that we share that we have been given even though we may not feel like it. In light of this, we should be reminded that we should never, be a, we should never allow for the way we feel to guide us. Please hear this today. We live in such a feeling... You know, just whatever your heart says. Don't do what your heart says. Your heart's evil and wicked. Don't follow your heart. Follow Jesus. But, but we live in this world and we're so tempted you know, to just, just do or to go by the way we feel. Yet we should be controlled by the Holy Spirit and live in obedience to the will of God in spite of how we feel. That's a measure of spiritual maturity. But if all we're doing is selfishly keeping what we have learned to ourselves, you know, we kind of run the risk of becoming stagnant. Like, like a body of water that has only something coming in and nothing coming out. It gets, it gets diseased. It's unhealthy. The water's not good for anything. But we, as another example, are called to be rivers of, 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 of life. Where water's flowing in. Where the living Word of God is flowing out of us. And, and this... And if this happens, we like the recipients of this letter, if we're just stagnant ponds and it's always coming in and it's not coming out, the author here says, you've got to be taught again the, the basic principles of the oracles of God. I, I don't want to get into all that. We'll get into that later. Simply, it's this. It's not overcomplicated. It's what Jesus said. said love God, love others. That's, that's some of the first basic principles of the oracles of God, right? 
And so they were dull of hearing, they had an inability to share, and they were also in need of a baby food diet. Key indicators. Verse 12, it says, And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes, here's the key word, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the world or in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. So as we look at, as we look at, as we continue to look at these spiritually immature believers, we see that they come to the place where they needed to be taught the first principles. That's what this analogy of milk is being connected to. Not solid food. They needed to be brought back to the beginning. The Greek word that's used here is a word where we get our English word for Adam, right? And it's the idea is this, this is these very primary elements by which everything else is built up or built upon by, right? On an atomic level is what we're talking about. These primary elements, these first principles. In other words, they needed something they could digest. The primary elements needed to sustain spiritual life. What are the primary elements that are needed to sustain spiritual life? Where is spiritual life found? And the thing about milk, it's something that babies can digest on a really quick side note, right? But we need to understand that there's a difference between being able to digest milk and only being able to digest milk. In other words, adults can easily digest solid food and enjoy a cup of milk. I can eat a chocolate chip cookie and drink a glass of milk, but not my two-month-old grandbaby, you know? Someday we'll have milk and cookies together, but not yet. She's not mature enough, right? And I make note of this because there's nothing wrong with a spiritually mature believer partaking of the milk of the Word of God. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, these things that are elemental to spiritual life, he says, lay aside malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking as as newborn babes, just like a newborn baby does, desire the pure milk of the Word of God that you may grow thereby, if indeed have you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So we're never to abandon these elemental things, these foundational things, these primary things. We're never to abandon the pure milk of the Word, thinking that it's only for those who are young in the Lord. Oh, it's just for you babies. That's not the idea. Rather, to, we're to make it the foundation of, of all of our teaching. If, if, that, if, these, if these fundamental things of, of Christ and of spiritual life aren't in everything that we teach, if it's not in everything that we are hearing and everything that we're studying in the Word of God, we're missing it. We're off track. And the bottom line is we must never leave the first principles or the the primary elements of our faith. We're to add to them. Keep that in mind because I'm going to give you a verse at the end of Scripture. We're to be adding to them daily. In fact, if we're not adding to them, what happens is spiritual malnutrition. That's kind of the analogy that flows through. We'll become anemic or spiritually malnutrition and as a result we become weak and so the milk of god's word what is it referring to it, in the context of what we're reading we have to see that this spiritual life that this this unelemental foundational things of our faith it refers primarily let's break it down into two categories it refers to firstly what jesus did while he was here on this earth what was that think about it his birth his life teaching death burial and resurrection And so on the contrary, the reference to solid food in light of the context of the passage is a reference to Jesus now as our high priest, right? And we see then that the solid food is connected to the things connected to Jesus as high priest. Where he's at, where he is serving, 
in heaven, the heavenly, the heavenly calling. And, we're, we're, and, and we will chew on all of these things when we get to chapter 7 in more detail, but the thought for us now to follow is this, is that when we begin our Christian life on the, we begin our Christian life on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ while he was here on this earth, right? While he was here, he did certain things. And we grow in our Christian life on the basis of his continued work for us while he's in heaven. Look at it like this. Spiritual birth came as a result of Jesus' birth, the things that Jesus taught, His death upon the cross, His burial, and ultimately His resurrection. But our spiritual growth, spiritual birth, spiritual growth comes as we learn about Jesus' heavenly ministry and the heavenly call that we've been brought into. And this is why God wanted these Hebrew peoples to grow in their their faith and, and in their knowledge of His Son, Jesus, because with this comes so many more blessings for you and I. It's, it's like milk is good, but steak is better. Right? And maybe you don't like steak. I mean, it's like, a chef's salad is better. Whatever your thing is, solid food. God has better for us in Jesus Christ through His heavenly ministry and this heavenly call. It's not that one is bad, there's something better. Why would we not want more? And the assurance of our salvation and the sanctification right, of, 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 our, of, our, of our sinfulness, you know, the open access to His throne of grace, all these blessings, the understanding of that, and so much more. But because these Hebrew peoples, because of their, their, their spiritual immaturity, they lack the ability to understand these deeper things, and they lack the ability to partake of them. And they needed to go back to milk, to the basic things, to be strengthened. Lastly, because of their spiritual immaturity, we'll see that they were unskilled in using the Word of God. This is where it gets very real. Verse 14. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So, if the worship team wants to come up, we're going to end with this. The idea is this. As we grow and our knowledge of God's Word, as we grow in our knowledge of God's Word, we should be learning how to use it daily in our lives. We learn to use it in our daily life. As we, as we are then willing to apply God's Word to our lives, we exercise our spiritual senses. Okay? Follow this line of thought. I'm going to start over again. As we grow in our knowledge of God's Word, it has to start with that. As we grow in our knowledge of God's Word, we learn to use it in our daily lives. And as we are willing to apply God's Word to our lives, we are then exercising our spiritual senses. And in turn, developing spiritual discernment. See, this is such an important thing in regards to spiritual maturity because like a little child... A spiritually immature believer lacks discernment. And the result, when you lack discernment, is a vulnerability to the lies and the deceptions of this world and of Satan. The Bible says you're going to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Going after this, going after that, 
chasing the philosophies of this world, the philosophy of men, the wisdom of the earth, not the wisdom from above. And one of the things, think about this in regards to this uh, this spiritual connection in regards to the analogy of spiritual growth and physical growth because one of the things that I know about babies is that they're known for the fact that they're just going to put about anything into their mouths. I'm not going to tell you which one of my kids it was, but I forgot this until t- just now. When we came, I, well, it was my wife was at home. I was at work, and she, she called me horrified because she found one of our daughters in the kitty litter box with an almond roca in her mouth. <laughs> it wasn't almond roca. It was, you know what? <laughs> and and that's, that's gross. And I'm like, she's going to be fine. Watch out her mouth, you know, all this. Um, but kids, they don't, they'll, they'll put anything into their mouth. Little babies, ah, it's going to be good, right? It's not good. Get that in your mouth. Don't bring that in. Guys, likewise, an immature believer, a spiritually immature believer will put anything and everything into their mouth. What does that mean? They'll listen to a teacher. And they'll eat up everything that they're being told. And we live in such a world today where it's so easily accessible to turn on the TV, to turn on the internet, to turn on social media, and have so many different opinions and so many different things in regards to the things of God being thrown in your face. And they do this, spiritually mature people do this, because they're not able to identify whether or not that what they're being taught is good or bad. We're not able to discern what is a truth and what is a lie. And again, this is so important in light of the world that we live in. Not just for ourselves so that we're guarded against just cramming things in that's going to hurt us, but as we act as, as loving brothers and sisters who love God and love others that will go, don't put that into your mouth. <laughs> Gross. And so the ability to discern good and evil is a vital part of Christian maturity. I'll leave you with this. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-9. through 9. Remember I said add. We're adding to the elemental things. What are we adding to? But also for this reason, give every diligence to add to your faith. Go read the rest. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-9. through 9. Read what we're told to add to our faith and grow in spiritual maturity. Father, thank you for this time together. Lord, we do want to be protected and you've made the means for us to be protected. Lord, to grow in our knowledge and understanding of who you are and in this call, this heavenly call that you've called us to as our great high priest. Lord, may we only take you in. Lord, may we stop cramming the things of this world, the things that our flesh desires into our spiritual bodies, Lord. Forgive us for those things that we've taken in. Lord, take them out. And may you alone have that place in our hearts and in our minds, Lord. For in you, it's superior. In you, it's better. In you, there's health and vitality and discernment and protection. Lord, we love you. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you guys stand?